In a system that prioritizes grading and performance, we are essentially telling students, I don't care what's happening in your brain. The only thing I care about is what you can put on this piece of paper. And that creates incentives for cheating, for cramming, that are completely disconnected from learning. Welcome to TG2 Chat Live, the podcast home of teachers going gradeless. I'm Michelle Cottrell-Williams, the 2018 Virginia Teacher of the Year and gradeless advocate since 2016. My guest today is Dr. Liz Norell. Liz is passionate about great teaching and student success. As a political scientist, she's motivated to understand how and why we develop the political beliefs we do and how to have more productive dialogue across differences. She embraces pedagogies of equity and care, including the full spectrum of ungrading. Well, welcome, Liz. I'm excited to get to talk to you about your teaching. So let's get started. Yes. Um, So I learned about you uh, when a Twitter thread you wrote about your first night uh, teaching a community college class kind of went viral uh, on Twitter. Um, I read the thread and I thought, like, I I need to know who this person is. Um, Can you share with us what was it uh, that caused this shift in your thinking around grading, assessment, and really the purpose of education? Sure. And thanks for having me. Uh, so I want to start just by telling you the story of a student that I encountered very, very early in my teaching career. So I was um, still in my PhD program. I'm a political scientist by training, but I had a master's in journalism. So I was doing some writing instruction at the local community college while I was in grad school. And this is what at the time we called developmental writing, but now we would call learning support or I don't know. And this was a student who was just very confused about why she was put into my class Mm. because she graduated in the top 10% of her class. She had a 4.0 and she was like the star of her high school. And then she got to college, a community college Mm -hmm. and was told you're not college ready. And she just couldn't wrap her mind around that. And so um, through the process of the semester, you know, we learned how to write the five paragraph essay and she came up with a really specific like template for how to do this. So how Mm -hmm. to transition, how to set up the introduction, how to start her thesis sentence and to, you know, pass out of this class and go into comp one, they had to take a test, which was like, part grammar, part write an essay. Mm -hmm. And when she submitted her essay, it came back as basically identical to an essay that someone else had written. Mm. And the grading committee said, we don't know which student wrote the original and which one plagiarized. So they're both going to fail and they both have to take it over again. Mm -hmm. And I was so upset that, and she was upset too, I pulled out every piece of writing she had done. I gave it to the grading committee and I said, I know how the student writes. And if you read this, you will be able to tell if it's hers. Mm -hmm. And they read that and they said, this is totally clear. You're absolutely right. The other instructor of the other student went to that student and said, talk to me about your essay. She said, I found this on the lab computer and just changed a few words and Mm -hmm. 
did it. Mm-hmm. And so my student called me in tears and said, no one has ever fought for me before. Mm. No one has ever believed me before. And that experience to me just said so much about the students that would come into my classroom in particularly in a community college setting. Mm -hmm. Although I think we see this throughout higher ed, frankly. Mm -hmm. And I just decided then that I was going to be that kind of teacher Mm -hmm. that students could count on to be an advocate in their corner believing them, trusting them, and fighting for them. Mm, Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yes. So to shift from that into the Twitter thread, you know, this this story of, you know, getting to teach a night class for the first time since 2016, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just sort of talked about the the experience of being in that much bigger container of learning Mm -hmm. where it's once a week and it's two and a half hours. And I love that. I love the freedom that you get in being able to chase rabbits down holes and still not lose the thread of what you're trying to do that day. And I was just so filled with excitement when I came out of that class, I was full to bursting. And it was because I felt like we had found the joy in this shared space together and all of the things that I talked about, the, the icebreakers and the getting to know you and, you know, telling students about my ungrading philosophy and doing a little bit of um, coming up with ideas about how we could use this time together. It was all just, you know, it all just flows from this past that I've had of of trying to always center the student mm. and their well-being in a classroom. mentioned uh, finding the joy uh, in with with your students in your class and I really felt that as I read what you were writing about on Twitter I read so much joy in what you wrote and I'm wondering how you see the connection between joy and learning as it operates in your classroom It's central. And, Mm -hmm. you know, several years ago, I was thinking about learning. I I am always reading, you know, about pedagogy and practice and, and learning and students. And I just remember having this moment of realization of remembering how much fun it was as a kid Mm -hmm. to just go exploring in the woods behind my house and to, it's just this innate curiosity of wanting to understand how everything works. And for me, education has always been joyous because I've, I just, I'm curious about everything, especially things that other people are really excited about. But there's something about the way we teach our classes starting in kindergarten, all the way up through graduate school, 
that seems to suck all of that childlike curiosity out of us. And so I'm on a mission to bring it back into my mm-hmm. classes. I want students to allow themselves to get curious about something and then just go find out about it and then come tell us about it. Um, and so that is central, this idea of joy. If it's mm-hmm. not fun, you don't want to do it. Mm. And it feels like another task that you have to check off. And some of our work is always going to feel that way. And some of our students' work is always going to feel that way. But to the extent that we can infuse some joy and some, I don't know, just fun into the classroom, Mm -hmm. then we don't have to work as hard to provide extrinsic motivation for our students. They're there because they want Mm. to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you said uh, something about the way that we do school has taken the joy out of it. Uh, Might you have a hypothesis (laughs) about what that something is or what have you seen in your own practice that um, when you changed, uh, it brought the joy back? Well, I think my students have always known that I'm super excited to be in the classroom and there's Mm -hmm. a kind of like... um, it's almost like a sideshow, but then also interesting, you know, mm. it's like it, they want to watch to see like, what is she going to do next? But then there's also like, I don't know it, if she's this excited about what she's saying, maybe there's something interesting there. So the joy has always been there, but I think that as educators, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the academic culture of, you know, never feeling good enough and Mm -hmm. always feeling like you have to um, be like really in charge. And so we get students sitting in rows quietly, don't move, don't talk, don't get out of your seat, don't go to the bathroom unless I give you permission. Like we're basically telling our students, ignore every human impulse you have. I am the boss of your body right now. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to be curious when you're afraid that every movement might get you into trouble. Mm -hmm. So if you're asking what my hypothesis is about where the joy went, it's just that total loss of autonomy Mm. and ability to direct your own learning or curiosity or just like be you in the classroom. Yeah, well and I and I think too like as a teacher early in my career I was so afraid of letting the students go with like exploration and driving their own learning because what if they didn't learn the right things, the stuff they were supposed to get out of the experience or the the lesson or the activity. And so if I just delivered it to them um, in a little package for their interactive notebook or whatever, right, then they learned the right thing. And I had that kind of control um, as well. So I didn't have to fear where they would end up if I wasn't there driving the ship. Mm-hmm. I relate to that a lot. And I, especially I think for K through 12 educators, Mm -hmm. because of the 
incredible loss of teacher agency in the classroom, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to just let your students go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, that's a structural problem that no individual teacher can solve. But I think if we step back and we think about our own educational experiences, I don't remember anything that I learned in K through 12, really. Like I Mm -hmm. developed some skills, but I couldn't say, oh yeah, I remember that day with that teacher. I learned how to do X. Um, I remember being in an environment where I was, where I had what I needed to learn. Mm. And it's not so much that the content was transferred from one brain to another. It's that the context was created that made it easy for me to learn. Now, I learn pretty easily and Mm -hmm. I love learning and I'm motivated to do it. So I was a good student. But there are other students in the room, and we know this, who don't have that orientation or or maybe aren't as intrinsically motivated to learn. And sitting them down and delivering unto them a neatly packaged content block is not going to mean that it absorbs. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we're here for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially, especially now, it, right? Because... Um, the, the packaged content, I can just Google it. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, you were talking about, I can't remember any one lesson, um, or one thing. Right. So then I started back through my mind, like, what can I remember? And there's two for me that stand out. Now I was, I, I became a history teacher, right? So this may not surprise you that the two that stand out to me was one in sixth grade, in social studies, we were studying ancient Egypt, and I don't remember the assignment directions, but I got to—I know I got to choose—and um, I did a diorama of the mummification process when we were studying ancient Egypt, and I took my Barbies and I turned it into a whole scene that I, I had one of them all wrapped up and there was even like a piece of cloth like in one of the doll's hands, and they were right. So I remember that. And the other one is my eighth grade U.S. history teacher. I remember him jumping on the table and saying, give me liberty or give me death, right, Patrick Henry. And I, in grad school, would point back to him, Mr. Moffat, as the reason I decided to become a history teacher. But both of those, I think, are emblematic of this joy, right, that that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And those are the two things that I remember, right? And in neither of those were you sitting in a desk listening to someone deliver you a perfectly packaged piece of content. You saw people, or you yourself, were doing something very human, Mm -hmm. very generative, very authentic, and driven by curiosity. So I want to kind of shift the conversation to talk about your identity in the classroom. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you shared with me that you, you value and are learning more and more about intersectionality and positionality in the classroom. Right. Uh, And so if you could, uh, 
first describe your own intersectional identities, um, how, how you define yourself. Sure. And I just want to say that there's this really great tool from the University of Michigan called the Social Identity Wheel. And we will link to that. I think you're going to link to that. Yes, um, ma'am. It's really wonderful. And I use it. I ask my students to complete this on their own. So I'm not asking them to like reveal their identities to mm-hmm. us, but I do give them guidance on how to do this. And, and they do. So when I think about my own identities, I'm white. I'm I'm a woman. I was born in the United States. I speak English. So I have a lot of kind of more privileged identities, but then mm-hmm. I, you know, being a woman has some, you know, cultural baggage with it. Um, I have a number of disabilities and I don't necessarily want to talk about them in great detail. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of anxiety and I tell my students that very upfront. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are some situations that are just harder for me. And mm-hmm. those I think have, um, the intersection of being a woman and having high anxiety. Mm-hmm. The whole point of intersectionality is that it's not just the sum of the parts, that it's somehow greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. So if you're an anxious person who's a male versus being an anxious person and a female, it's not just like adding the female. The female mm-hmm. heightens or amplifies the way that people see anxiety manifested. Mm-hmm. And so when when I think about my identity as an instructor, I think a lot about the fact that, you know, I... I'm going to be very sensitive to what's happening in the classroom. I don't like conflict. And as Mm -hmm. a political scientist, that um, (laughs) often surprises students. And I I just won't do debate. Um, Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of identities that I come into the room with. Doing the work to unpack and understand that has helped me understand how varied the identities of my students are in Mm -hmm. a way that's really empathetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do your identities uh, compare with many of the students whom you get to work with? So I teach primarily at a community college and mm-hmm. um, this night class is actually at a, like an R2, like a regional university. Mm-hmm. So that's at a different campus. But, you know, even across those two, I have students ranging from 14 to 80 so mm-hmm. I have a lot of dual enrollment high school students. Um, that's probably about 50% of the people that I teach. And then I have some traditional age students. And I have a lot of people who have full lives, kids, parents, jobs that they have to take care of. In terms of how our identities are alike or, or not, uh, I see many more students of color, Mm-hmm. perhaps even a greater percentage than is in the local population mm-hmm. uh, because a community college is feels more accessible to them, although we still have a lot of work to do there, frankly. And I think my students are often at a lower economic class than I am, and there's a mm-hmm. lot of stuff that comes with poverty and food insecurity and housing insecurity that I think the real college movement is getting is doing a really good job of shining a light on, but we just have no clue how hard the lives are of many of our students. Mm-hmm. And they're, it's not something that they often will feel comfortable sharing with us, but, you know, something like a quarter of students in college experiences food insecurity at some mm-hmm. point during the semester. It's huge. And so, you know, those being aware of that and how that experience is different from mine 
drives a lot of my pedagogical choices. As you think about becoming a a more equity-minded, more anti-racist, a more culturally responsive educator, how does your approach to ungrading align with or support that movement? I think that they're very intertwined. Because in my mind, equity means reducing barriers to success, right? Meeting Mm -hmm. students where they are. Mm -hmm. And ungrading is exactly that. Mm. It's looking for growth, not perfection. And so I, you know, I ask students, I tell them, I don't know what's going on inside your brain. I don't know what's happening. I can only count on you to be relatively reliable narrator of what's happening in your brain. And that means that every single student, regardless of their experiences with education before or currently, is being told, I trust you to tell me what's happening with you. Mm -hmm. And that, as I said, is very empowering, but it also helps to address some of the implicit biases that we all bring Mm -hmm. to teaching right? If I'm trying to evaluate teaching, even if I do it anonymously, I'm going to see things in the, the subtle ways that students use language or put things to put thoughts together that, you know, I may be biased. I may have a bias against without Mm -hmm. even knowing it. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not about intentions. I'm not talking Mm -hmm. about racism. I'm talking about the cultural norms that we've all been stewing in Mm -hmm. for our whole life. And so if I take the onus of assigning a letter grade off of my plate and put it on the students and tell them that I want you to evaluate how you have grown during our time together, then that removes any possibility that I am bringing any bias to that decision. I mean, ideally we would have no grades, but if we have to assign a grade, let the student assign the grade. Mm-hmm. And let me just be kind of like a coach and a cheerleader and, a, you know, giving them feedback and talking to them about, I, I mean, honestly, my feedback looks like a series of questions like, oh, I'd never thought of that. Tell me more about that. And mm-hmm. if you're thinking about this, maybe go look at this other thing, because I think it'll provide a different perspective that will, you know, help you clarify your thinking about something, right? So it's a conversation mm-hmm. about how to continue to grow as Mm -hmm. a learner. And to me, that is exactly what equity-minded education looks like. to someone who's pushing back at what you just said (laughs) and saying if students with these uh, historically minoritized, marginalized identities have had less success in at the college level, the academic um, realm, aren't you just lowering your expectations or making it easier so that you can guarantee successful outcomes for them? I think that we have to know what it is that our goal is to answer that Mm -hmm. question. So if our goal is the delivery of content 
and wrapped up in a nice neat package that they can regurgitate on a test, maybe. But when I look at our institutional, you know, learning outcomes, that's not what I see. I -hmm. see skills Mm. and skills. Well, let me just say this. I have yet to be convinced that there isn't a way to objectively assess learning itself. We can assess things that are perhaps indicators of learning for some people. So exams and portfolios and these things, they're they're imperfect. They're easier for some people than others. There are equity challenges in them. Mm-hmm. So to someone who would say, well, you know, you're just making, you're dumbing it down, right? You're making it less mm-hmm. rigorous. You're making it easier. And now students can get a good grade without having actually learned anything. I would say, how do you know that your students have ever learned anything? Mm-hmm. Because in a, in a system that prioritizes grading and performance, we are essentially telling students, I don't care what's happening in your brain. The only thing I care about is what you can put on this piece of paper. And that creates incentives for cheating, for cramming, that are completely disconnected from learning. So I'm not convinced that those hard classes are resulting in any more or any less learning than Mm. an ungraded class would. But Mm. I will also say that I believe that humans are innately curious. And when Mm -hmm. you take the burden of performance to some standard that may or may not be the kind of performance that they're innately good at, when you take that off the table, your students will perform They will perform in ways that surprise you and delight you and that are joyful. And every student will do it differently, which means it's so much more fun to watch as an educator because I'm not reading 25 of the same essay. Yes, (laughs) literally, because they they probably had chat GPT write it for them. Right. Um, So what are some of your go-to recommendations for people who ask and what are you reading right now? Um, the people who are listening won't be able to see, but you, Michelle, can see there's a lot of books in my room. (laughs) A lot. Um, This is not a virtual background. This is the real deal. Um, And there's just, I'm always reading a lot. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Emotional Agility, which is about how to kind of be more flexible in our thinking and experience. So Viktor Frankl has this thing that he talks about that there's the gap between what happens and what we tell ourselves about it. And if we can interrupt, if we can elongate that gap, then we are less reactive. So I love this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also reading Jeffrey Cohen's new book called Belonging, which is about how situations get in the way of belonging and how to kind of find more ways to be in belonging with others and to create a space that helps everyone feel like they belong. So I'm loving those two books. I'm also listening to, so you want to talk about race. Mm -hmm. And um, if I was confident, I could say her name correctly. I would, but I am not, so I won't, but it's very good. I believe, I believe it's Ijeoma Olua. Yes, I think that's right. Um, (laughs) I, I haven't practiced it and I'm always worried about saying someone's name incorrectly. Um, But in terms of go-to recommendations, uh, I first learned about the social identity wheel exercise that I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier in Beverly Daniel Tatum's book, Why Mm -hmm. Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. So I read that in the summer of 2020 with a group of educators from around Mm -hmm. the world in sort of the wake of George Floyd and all of that. And, Mm -hmm. um, so I love that book. I also think there's a 
there's a book in the West Virginia University Press series about talking about race in the classroom. Can't remember the exact title of it, but it's Cindy Hernahan, maybe. Oh, I'm afraid I'm getting that name wrong, but uh, I, I can send you the information on that. I love that, that book. Yes. <laughs> and um, also Zaretta Hammond's Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain or, or something like that. Yes. Those books are excellent. And finally, Vigi Sathi and Kelly Hogan's recent book, Inclusive Teaching, is also magnificent. So those are the ones that I would recommend. All right. So it sounds like you have a to-be-read pile. Huge. Um, <laughs> that is bigger than mine, probably. But your, your I got through it and read it pile is probably also bigger than mine. So <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And those sound, those sound like great um, recommendations. Thank you so much for sitting and chatting with me. This, this has been a joyful experience uh, for me getting to learn from you uh, and to get excited again about what education can be and the joy that we can co-create with our students if we allow it. So thank you so much. It's been such a joy, Michelle. Thank you. Liz Norell has been my guest today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of TG2 Chat Live. You can find more great content on our website, teachersgoinggradeless.com, on Twitter at TG2Chat, or on Facebook at Teachers Going Gradeless. If you enjoy this content, please consider supporting our efforts by becoming a TG2 member. Go to patreon.com slash gradeless and choose your level of support. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you for the next installment of TG2 Chat Live.